this morning, we will see some of the similarities that God has in relation to us and the relationship that a loving mother has with her children as well. And so we're picking up, we're, we're in the uh, latter part of chapter 8 of the book of Romans. We started this series a while ago entitled Romans, the Foundation of Our Faith. As Paul is the one who wrote this letter of Romans to the church at Rome, he wanted to go in person to preach the gospel message to the church at Rome. But in the meantime, he, he was going to write a letter about the gospel message. And last week we saw a wonderful piece of scripture as Paul contrasted the present day suffering that we go through. It's not a matter of if you're going to suffer in this present world. It's a matter of when. It's a matter many of us are suffering as we speak right now. You will suffer. You will suffer. That, that, that is a truth found in God's word that you will suffer. But the present suffering that we go through Paul says in chapter 8, it doesn't even begin to compare to the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus comes to establish his king, God's kingdom here on earth. And so you may be going through a hard time right now, but, but that won't even compare to the glory, to the joy that you will experience in God's coming kingdom. Paul also talked about in our piece of scripture last week how the Spirit is interceding for us and how God has chosen us beforehand to be justified and glorified. That's right. God has chosen you to receive glory. That, that, that's a pretty cool concept. That's a pretty cool idea. And that's where we left off last week. Uh, and we pick up here this morning at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're picking up in verse 31 this morning. We're going to be uh, finishing chapter 8, and we're going to be going through the first five verses of chapter 9 as well. And so Paul picks up in chapter 8, verse 31, and Paul writes to this church at Rome. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so in verse 30, we see that God has predestined us. He has called us. He has justified us. And he has glorified us. These are all the blessings of being a child of God. And then Paul says, with all of that being said, with all of these blessings that God has given to us, who can be against us? Who can stand against us if God is on our side? You know, uh, Paul uh, says that God, in, in verse uh, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. As God did not even spare his own son, Jesus Christ, for you and I. These words uh, certainly would have stirred the heart of the Jews. The, the, the church that, that Paul was dealing with consisted heavily of Jews. And for a Jew, arguably uh, the two most important heroes of the faith, we're talking about Abraham and Moses. Abraham was so important because it is through his family, the Israelites, in which God established a covenant with. That, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And that his descendants, his offspring, would inherit the land. 
And then on top of that, Moses, Moses was so important because he led the Israelites out of slavery and God established the age of the law with Moses and the Israelites. And so these are their top two guys, Abraham and Moses, when we're talking about a law-abiding Jew. And God said these same words in regards to Abraham. As God put Abraham to the test, he, he tested Abraham's faith and his loyalty. As God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, with, with, with his wife, Sarah. That being after the fact that God told Abraham his descendants would be, would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and that they would be a blessing to all nations. And now he has one child with his wife and now God is telling him to go and sacrifice him. What, what in the world is God thinking here? Well, God was testing Abraham's loyalty and his faith in God. And Abraham, he followed through with this test. Abraham took his son. They, they, they took a, a, a journey to, to go up to the mount to go and sacrifice his son as God had commanded him. And Abraham uh, bound his son Isaac up. He, he tied him up, had him laying down, and he had a knife in his hands ready to sacrifice his son just like God had commanded him. When lo and behold, God sends a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. And so Abraham didn't have to lay a, a hand on his son Isaac. And then God tells Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 12, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see, Abraham throughout his life, he, he had his ups and, and he had his downs as well. I'm not sure there is a better example in the scriptures or even outside of the scriptures of someone showing their love their allegiance, and their trust in God. As Abraham, he was willing to sacrifice his son because he put his trust in God. We find out later uh, in the book of Hebrews, Abraham reasoned that he could have raised his son Isaac from the dead. And so Abraham, he placed his faith in God. He placed his trust in God. He was 100% loyal to God, even to the command that you have to go sacrifice your son, Isaac. And so Paul, about uh, 2,000 years later, Paul is essentially telling his audience to think about the greatest act of loyalty and faithfulness in all of history. Abraham being willing to lay down his son, Isaac, for God. So think about the greatest act of loyalty and faithfulness. And God's loyalty and faithfulness to you is like that. There are a lot of comparisons between Abraham's faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to us. As God did not even spare his own son, Jesus of Nazareth. And unfortunately for God, he had to go through with the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, where, where, where Abraham, he, he was willing, he passed the test. And at the very last moment, God said, do not lay, lay your hand on this boy. God actually went through it. That is the faithfulness. That is the loyalty that God has to you, that he would not even spare his own son for you. And on top of this loyalty, on top of this faithfulness that God has for you, 
Paul continues in verse 33 and he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who has at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so on top of God's loyalty and faithfulness, faithfulness for us. He also justifies us. This is a word that we've been talking about a lot throughout the series. Justification is the process of being declared righteous. And so God declares us as righteous. He is the one who justifies us. Your neighbor, your, your coworker, your friend or family member may say X, Y, or Z about you, but who cares? Who cares what they say about you? They aren't the one who justifies you, who declares you righteous. God is the one who declares you righteous if you have a living faith in him and his son. And this is, for me personally, if I'd be open and honest with you all and vulnerable, this is so hard for me. Naturally, I care pretty deeply about what others think about me. I uh, have a tendency to be a people pleaser. I'm highly motivated by that. I I want people to think highly of me. And this is in all areas of my life, and and it can have a devastating effect on me. I actually read a uh, book last year entitled The People-Pleasing Pastor, detailing the pitfalls of seeking to be a people pleaser. Is that you? Do, do, do you seek to people pleaser? Is that what motivates you? Is that what drives you? And if that's you, sometimes you just need to tell yourself, who cares? Who cares? So, so say it after me. Who cares? Who cares what people think? There is only one being who justifies us. And that is God. And we need our focus is on pleasing others, but our focus is on pleasing God. Now, with that being said, when, when we are seeking to please God, you know what often happens is you're pleasing those around you. But, but that's not 100% of the time. Uh, and the same applies uh, to the, the church as well. That's a harsh uh, reality for some to, to hear. I, I hesitate to say in a public setting uh, like this, but this church is not here uh, to please you. That, that, that's not why we exist as a church. We, we exist as a church to please God. God is the one who declares whether or not this is a righteous group of people. And when we are pleasing God... Don't, don't misunderstand here. When, when we are pleasing God, more often than not, we, we are going to be pleasing. We, we are certainly going to be loving towards those around us. But seeking to be a people pleaser, that cannot be our primary driving factor in our life. It needs to be God because God is the one who justifies us. He is the one who declares whether or not we are guilty and in need of death and everlasting death or if we are righteous and have a stake in his coming kingdom where everything wrong with this world will be made right. And so God is the one who justifies us. And on top of that, God has given the authority to condemn us over to his son, Jesus. Jesus currently sitting at the right hand of God. God raised Jesus victoriously from the grave. God has given Jesus authority and power, and God has handed that authority to judge the world over to his son, Jesus. He's given the authority to condemn the world to his son, Jesus. Yet the one who has been given authority to condemn us, he is seated at the right hand of God. And do you know what he's doing right now? 
He is interceding for you and I. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How cool is that? The, the, the one being whom God has handed the power and authority to judge the world, he is sitting at the right hand of God as we speak, he is pleading for you and I because he loves us, as we'll see here in a second here. And so on top of God's faithfulness and his loyalty to us, on top of God justifying us, on top uh, of Christ, the one who's been given the authority to condemn us, is actually interceding for us. On top of all of that, Paul says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So last week, we, we talked extensively about how we suffer in this world. That, that's one of the unfortunate uh, consequences, the unfortunate result of living in a world that is cursed and tainted by sin. If there was no sin in the world, there'd be no suffering in this world. But because there is sin, it's inevitable that we all will suffer. But these hardships, the, the, these times of suffering that we go through, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. No matter what, life's throw, what, no matter what life throws at you, whether that's a loss of a child, a loss of a parent, a loss of a job, cancer, heartbreak, turmoil, none of that can take away the fact that Christ showed his love for you on that, Christ, on that cross and that Christ has a love for you today as, he's, as he is interceding on behalf of you to his heavenly father. No suffering can take away the love that Christ has for you. And not only suffering, Paul doesn't stop there. He says in verse 38, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the more well-known passages in the Bible. So not only is it impossible for suffering to separate us from the love of Christ, but death nor life can separate us from the love of Christ. And death, we, we die with Christ. We, we then are eventually raised with him. We, we are united in his death and in his resurrection. The heavenly beings, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ either, the, the angels nor the rulers. There were rabbis uh, who taught that the angels uh, weren't the biggest fans of human beings, that, that they were uh, begrudgingly uh, serving us uh, as God wanted that. They, they kind of didn't want to share uh, God with us. I'm not sure if, if I agree uh, with this idea or not, um, but regardless, the, the, these angels, they, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Any present situation that we're going through or future situation that, that you dream of, I know you dream of it, and, and your wildest uh, dreams at night, oh, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. None of that, even if it does happen, which is probably not going to happen. But even if it does happen in the midst uh, of your anxiety, that cannot separate you from the love of Christ. No physical or supernatural power or authority 
can separate you from the love of Christ. In our uh, society and culture, there, there's a lot of grumbling about the physical powers and authorities in our life. But we must understand that no matter what the authorities do, they cannot separate you from the love of Christ. They cannot take that away from you. Even if they want, even if that's their desire and the authority that, that God has given them, they cannot take that away from you. So maybe uh, some of us maybe need to scale down, giving them so much thought and power over our life. For they can't take that away from us. And then finally, Paul says, no height, nor death, nor anything created can separate us from the love of Christ. This world that we live in can be pretty brutal at times, but this at times brutal world cannot take away Christ's love for us. And this is a message that the people need to hear so badly. There are countless, countless people, not only overseas, but countless people within our own county, within our own state, within our own nation that have no idea that there is someone who loves them so deeply. That there is a God who loves them, who created them in his image, laid down his son for them, and the son was willing to go through with that, and the son is now interceding for them. They need to hear that they are loved, that they have value. And maybe some of you need to hear that today as well. Maybe you aren't feeling loved by those around you. Maybe you're feeling unloved 100%, but you need to know that there's a God who loves you. And God had a special, special chosen one in which he has handed power and authority over to. And that Christ, that, that chosen one, that Messiah, he loves you too. And nothing, no one can take that away from you. And so just in these nine verses here, Paul brings to light the fact that God is loyal to us, that God justifies us, and he and his son love us. There are many similar qualities between our relationship with God and Christ Jesus and a loving mother and her children. I'll brag on the mothers uh, in my life here. Uh, each of them is loyal to their children. They have a love for their children that you nor I can take away from them. Many of us have mothers who fit this bill. And, and these mothers provide as a reflection of the type of relationship that God, that God in Christ Jesus has with you and I. So I encourage you as you celebrate Mother's Day, as you remember and honor the mothers in your life, and you think about those loving mothers, whether that, that is your physical mother or whether there, there is a lady in your life who showed a loving hand to you, they serve as a representation, a reflection of the type of relationship that we all share with God and his son, Christ Jesus. And so wonderful, wonderful passage here. And just the, the short uh, nine verses, bam, 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 uh, uh, Paul talking about the relationship that we have with God. 
And so as we transition here into chapter 9, Paul, he, he kind of shifts gears a bit. We, we've been kind of talking about similar themes throughout the, these last uh, couple of chapters. But Paul, he, he changes gears here starting in chapter 9. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals heavily uh, specifically with the Jews. And we have a bit of a dilemma with the Jews. When, when we read throughout uh, the Old Testament, we see that the Jews, the Israelites, they were God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament. God had a very, very special relationship with them. He adopted the family of Abraham as his own. And God did many miracles and wonders through this family of Abraham, through the Israelites, through the Jews. And he made a number of great promises and covenants to this group of people. And so God had this special relationship with, with the Israelites and the Old Testament. And then we flip over uh, to the New Testament when, when Jesus, he, he kind of radicalizes everything. And all of a sudden we see that many Jews were the people who rejected and had God's Messiah crucified. The question then is, what sort of relationship do you and I share with the Jews? What sort of relationship does God have with the Jews? These are uh, the sort of questions that Paul addresses in these next few chapters. This discussion would have been extremely relevant for Paul's original audience, as, as the church at Rome consisted heavily of a Jewish influence. And we have to understand that not all Jews rejected or had the Messiah crucified. There were a handful of Jews who believed that Jesus was God's chosen one, whom he foretold, years, uh, whom he foretold of years ago. And it's important for us today in the 21st century. Some of you guys may maybe think about why is this important? Why, why does it matter for, for us today in the 21st century the sort of relationship that God has with the Israelites? It's important for us because this, the, the Israelites, is what initiated our relationship today with our Heavenly Father. These miracles, these wonders, covenants, and blessings that God gave the Jews all led to our current relationship with God. We, we, we must understand the foundation on which it was established, on which our relationship with God has been established. And so we're just going to barely open uh, this can of worms. As we're going to read through the first five verses of chapter nine. But in the coming weeks, we're, we're going to continue to dissect this really intriguing paradox of the Jews in which God uh, originally had a very special relationship with them. And then with the coming of the Messiah, the same Messiah that these Jews have been waiting thousands of years for, many of them inadvertently turned their back on God as they rejected his Messiah. And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so as Paul uh, prepares to talk about the Jews, he, he let us know that he is not writing these words in anger or hostility. Rather, he, he is writing these words, as Paul says, he's writing the, these words with great sorrow and with unceasing anguish. 
As many of the Jews got God's chosen people veered off the track when they rejected God's Messiah, the same Messiah they've been anxiously awaiting for. And Paul was a Jew himself. And not only was he a Jew, but he was a Jew who had originally rejected Jesus as the Christ. Thank goodness Paul eventually came around to the saving faith in Christ Jesus. But Paul, he still had a deep affection for his people. So much so that this affection was so deep where in verse three, verse three he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so Paul had such a deep affection for his brothers that he would wish he would be cut off himself to benefit his brothers, his blood brothers, his Jewish brothers. You know, I think of, uh, I personalize this a bit, I think of Paul's relationships with the Jews, uh, with his brothers, similarly to my relationship with my brother, where I had shared this great faith in God with my brother, but he eventually veered off the narrow path that leads to, to salvation, and my heart breaks for him. Knowing that if Christ came back today, I would not be able to share in the joys of God's coming kingdom. And I'm not alone in that. You all have someone in your life, whether that be your brother, a sister, a parent, a child, a friend. You all have someone in your life, which I know your heart breaks for them. Knowing that if Christ came back today, you would not be able to share God's coming kingdom with them. And that same type of sorrow, that same type of unceasing anguish that you have for these family members or friends is the same type of sorrow and anguish that Paul had for his Jewish brothers and sister. You know, sometimes when we're reading through these words uh, 2000, about 2,000 years after the fact, we, we can kind of easily rid ourselves of the emotions that, that these words were written in. But Paul was writing these words talking about his brothers and sisters of the Jewish family with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And I encourage you to absorb the emotion that Paul write these words with and maybe compare it to the relationship that you have with a loved one that you don't share the, uh, the faith in God with. And so with this being said, Paul continues, and in verse 4 and 5, the last two verses we'll deal with today. Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So to the Jews belong the adoption as sons, as God adopted the family of Abraham as his own. To the Jews belong the receival of God's glory. To the Jews belong the covenants that God has established with their forefathers. To them belongs the law that God established with Moses, the worship of God, the promises associated with the covenants. And to them belong the great patriarchs of our faith. These are all blessings that God has poured out unto the Israelites. 
And on top of all of that, according to the flesh, that is the, the physical lineage of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, belongs to them as well. As Jesus descended from that family of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, Jesus was a son of David. And so Jesus was a Jew as well. He was one of their own kind. And all of these blessings, Paul says, they all belonged to the Israelites. And then in verse 5 here, uh, some of you guys uh, may be uh, catching there. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ. So, so according uh, to the flesh, the, the physical lineage, they, to them belong Christ Jesus, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. There's a bit of a uh, grammatical bias that we have to uh, address here in uh, verse 5, and I'll attempt to tread carefully. I actually uh, made a grammatical error last week uh, where we mentioned pneuma, the word for spirit, is a neuter word. I mentioned it was a masculine word that could be translated with a neuter pronoun. In fact, it is a neuter word it's in of itself, and so we see even more of some of this translation bias that uh, these translators of the scriptures have today. Russ caught me on that one after service uh, last week. So thank you, Russ. Keeping me on my feet. Uh, it's a good reminder for us all to not blindly believe uh, what, any th- what anyone says to you. You don't blindly believe what I say to you. You don't blindly uh, believe what Russ uh, says to you. You don't blindly uh, believe what your Sunday school teacher says to you, your friends, the preacher on your TV or computer. You need to be diligently seeking the word on your own. We, we, we need to mimic the Bereans in the book of Acts as when they heard something, they reflected with the scripture and says, hey, the Does this line up with whatever uh, he or she is saying? But here in in verse 5, most translations uh, seem to call uh, Christ God. You have to remember, God is not a name. It's a title that is actually given to multiple uh, beings throughout the Bible. Uh, It may come as a surprise to some, but the, the title God is not reserved for the almighty creator alone. Just, uh, it's a title, just like father. Uh, the almighty creator is called a father, uh, but guess what? I'm called a father as well. The, these are different titles. His personal name, Y-H-W-H. Many uh, pronounce Yahweh. But uh, in the original writing of the Greek in which Paul was writing, they didn't have any punctuation marks. And so every single period or comma that you see in your Bible today It was not originally written by Paul or these other uh, authors of the Bible. 99% of the time, it's pretty clear where a period or a comma should go, and there's little debate about it. But there's reason for debate in how uh, translators insert punctuation marks here in verse 5. So we can also read verse 5 in this manner. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ, period. The one who is God over all, be be blessed forever. Amen. I'll read that again. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ. Period. The one who is God over all, be blessed forever. Amen. I think Paul is stating here to the Jews that according to their physical lineage, Jesus belongs to them. As Jesus is is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, and a descendant of uh, King David. And then because of all these blessings that Paul talks about in these verses uh, before, that to the Jews uh, belong uh, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, etc. All of these blessings, because of all of these blessings, Paul says, 
uh, to the one who is God over all, be blessed forever. Amen. And, and so kind of uh, like an epilogue here, after all of these blessings, Paul acknowledges, blessed be to the one God who is, who, who is over all. Uh, amen. So this, uh, this punctuation separates the titles of Christ and God as two separate beings there. I, I don't think, uh, personally, from looking at uh, the other writings throughout Paul's uh, books here in letters, I don't think he's trying to, to combine them into one person, these two different uh, titles. It was actually uh, one of the verses that we tackled in our difficult text studies. So, so this sort of thing really intrigues you and interests you. I, again, encourage you to, to take a binder and take a look at some of these difficult texts. But with all that being said, uh, I don't want to get too uh, divulge in this uh, grammatical uh, situation here. All this being said, Paul says, in all of this anguish and sorrow in writing about the Jews, he says, originally, all of these blessings belong to them. And the greatest of most is that to them belongs the Messiah himself, as Jesus descended from that family. And so I, I so enjoy, as we conclude here, I so enjoy the, this piece of scripture in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 as well. In the latter part of chapter 8, Paul tells us how God and his son interact with us. That God is so loyal and faithful to us that he didn't even spare his own son for us. Just like Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, God did not even spare his own son for us. That's the type uh, of loyalty that God has for you and I. And on top of that, God is the one who justifies us as well. God declares us righteous when we put our faith in him, no matter what the world thinks about us. And so some of you guys need to be saying to yourself, who cares what the world thinks about us? The only mind that matters is the mind of God and what he thinks about you. And then finally, nothing. When I say nothing, I mean nothing. No one can separate us from the love of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so much of how God and Jesus interact with us today mirror how a loving mother interacts with her children. And so I hope you all have a wonderful Mother's Day today. And as you celebrate and remember and honor Mother's Day, let it be a reminder to you that the love and care that a loving mother has for her children serves as a wonderful illustration, a wonderful representation of the love, the loyalty, the faithfulness that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for these words of Paul. Father, we thank you for the mothers in our life, the love the faithfulness, the loyalty that they exhibit to us. We thank you that they can serve for us as a physical image of what your love and faithfulness and loyalty look like to us. Father, at this time, I just uh, ask that you lift up uh, the people in our lives who don't share this great faith that we have in you and your son, Christ Jesus. Father, as Paul 
grieved deeply. He had anguish in his heart day in and day out. Father, we we grieve for our family and friends, uh, likewise, who, who don't share this faith. And so, Father, I just pray for all of our loved ones out there that need it, that they have an experience like the Apostle Paul. We totally uproot them in the way they're headed. And you show them your glory and your honor and your love. So we love you. We love your son. And all the power and authority you've given to him is in his name that we pray. Amen.